Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast. For the week of Monday, October 29th, 2012, I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And this is the Around the Nation podcast, sponsored by the City of Salem, host of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets on sale now at www.salemciviccenter.com. And the Stag Bowl is going to have at least one you know, new team or a team that hasn't been there, say, in the last uh, seven years or so as uh, Wisconsin Whitewater uh, took all of uh, their particular Selection Sunday drama out of, uh, out of contention by losing to Wisconsin Stevens Point on Saturday, Keith. Yeah, and it's been really a atypical season for, for Whitewater in a lot of ways. They've played typically good defense, and we've talked on a lot of different podcasts about the struggles they've had on offense, and those struggles continued on Saturday. And by Wisconsin Whitewater now having that third loss this season, we guarantee that we won't have the eighth uh, all-purple Stag Bowl, or we may have an all-purple Stag Bowl, but it won't be between Whitewater and, and Mount Union, who've, who've played in the past seven Stag Bowls. And so really now this opens up a, a very interesting question in my mind. Who gets put on the opposite side of the playoff bracket from Mount Union? You know, there's going to be three other number one seeds, assuming that, that Mount Union finishes strong and, and takes one of the number one seeds. And there are going to be some team, maybe a deserving team that's played a tough schedule, that's going to have to go through Mount Union to get to the Stag Bowl. And then there's going to be another team on the, on two other teams or 16 other teams on the opposite side from Mount Union that won't have to, to leap that hurdle to get to Salem. So the defending champ, and in fact the three-time defending champ, not getting back to the uh, NCAA playoffs this year. The last time that uh, defending champ did not qualify for the playoffs the next year was in 2004 when St. John's, who won the 2003 national title, also uh, lost three games. They won seven and three. They lost that third game uh, in the, this week of, uh, of that season as well. They lost that game in week nine, so it's about the same time that we have uh, the official elimination, you know, is usually over the course of the past, I don't know, most of the last couple of decades at least, uh, we've at least been able to get to the national quarterfinals before we could say for sure that we're going to have a new champion. But this is uh, this is pretty early, and and you're right, it's been it's been an offensive struggle, and you know we kind of knew that not from week one, but from game two and week three when they uh, when they only scored six points against Buffalo State that this was going to be a struggle for Whitewater this season. Yeah, and, and when Whitewater goes back and, and looks back at this season, they're, they're going to be kicking themselves to a degree because they really have been a tremendous defense for the most part, with the exception of the the you know first half of the Oshkosh game. And um, they lose a 7-6 game where they had shut Buffalo State out for the first 59 minutes. And then they have a game on Saturday against Stevens Point where uh, you know they 17 points is, is not great, but they had a chance, you know, that they rallied from uh, – 17-3, and uh, were able to cut it to 17-14. They were able to set up a 47-yard field goal attempt for Eric Kindler. And, and to think, you know, Whitewater struggled all day, maybe has a big game hangover from the Oshkosh loss, but uh, is playing down to a, to a team, you know, that, that's, that hasn't had as much success this season. Is still able to pull this thing out if, if Kindler can make this field goal. Stevens Point blocks it, runs out the clock, and the, and the third loss, you know, sets in. Uh, and now, you know, we spent so much of last week talking about, well, what if Whitewater finishes eight and two? What do you know? How do they get in? You know, all that discussion is, is out the window because they're five and three now. And there's such a, a, a long line right now, Pat, of of teams in pool C in contention for the seven at large bids that have one loss and two losses, have some impressive victories. And right now, Whitewater uh, maybe has a nice victory over Platteville, but they have three losses, so they're not even going to get to the table in the West region when the playoff discussion happens. You know, some of the teams that had one loss and could be in contention for Pool C bids uh, knocked themselves out of uh, out of that contention on Saturday as well. And, you know, obviously, uh, a team such as Illinois Wesleyan was was likely to struggle without uh, without Rob Gallick at quarterback and and playing you know the the tough schedule that they have down the stretch. Um, yeah, Willamette with one loss was going to Linfield, and we'll talk more about that game later. But you know, there would have been a, a bit of a stretch for them to to win that game and and uh, and continue on. But um, you know, how about Franklin and Marshall, for example? That's a team that you know would be in possible position to be in contention for an at-large bid, and they lost at Susquehanna on Saturday to knock themselves down to six and two. Yeah, and and that's really the difference between a a you know. A playoff team, a team that's going to be nine and one, and, and is going to get to the board 
when they start selecting the at-large teams is these are teams that pretty much didn't stumble or if they had a rough game at some point during the season, and, and almost every team has one game where they, you know, they they don't play that well, or they they play down to a, a different opponent's level, or you know they have a lot of turnovers, whatever the case may be, but they they they, they figure out a way to pull it out. And uh, the the teams that stumble, that 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 can't be consistent week to week, like Franklin and Marshall, uh, you know, playing a playing against the Susquehanna team that's mostly struggled this season. You know, they had a kind of a golden opportunity because even though they trailed Johns Hopkins in the, in the Centennial race, uh, they were in pretty good shape and, and, and they were getting ready to get into the, that Pool C discussion and then they play their way out of it. And, and that happens. We see it happen every year, Pat. And that's why this, it's just such a big pool of teams. And it, it so often, most of it takes care of itself. Just looking at some of the other teams that, uh, you know, you and I went through this mock regional ranking process last week for uh, the Around the Nation column. If you haven't seen it, um, go to the go to the columns menu and pick out Around the Nation because by the time the uh, Around the Nation podcast hits the front page, the Around the Nation column rolls off. See how that goes, right? Um, but there are a bunch of teams who were, you know, at one loss, sitting in our rankings, who are not going to be in the NCAA's rankings because they lost and maybe lost uh, games you would not have expected. Uh, we talked about, of course, you know, some of the teams that lost games that you might have expected, and I think also you could probably put. Uh, Huntington on that list, uh, losing to Wesley. But, um, you know, Millsaps picked up another loss. Uh, Carnegie Mellon picks up another loss. Uh, talked about Franklin and Marshall. You know, um, there's just a, a whole list of, uh, you know, teams that had possibilities and have slightly less possibilities now. Yeah, and Pat, you mentioned the ones that, that had a, a, t- a tough row to hoe, so to speak. You know, Will- Willamette had to play uh, Linfield. Illinois Wesleyan had to play North Central without their their uh, starting quarterback, who's out with a torn ACL. You know those results, the 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 margin of victory was surprising in in both of those. You know, fifty two nothing for North Central and and forty one ten, I believe the the Linfield Willamette score. You know, those were surprising. I thought those would be uh, better games, but the, you're right. There were the there were the teams that had you know a chance to ha- to benefit from those other teams losing. And and they they you don't want to say shot themselves in the foot, but they they kind of clipped their own chances before before they were able to to really get in the the playoff discussion. You know, another team that picked up a second loss and is now not a uh, pool C candidate and is in trouble right now is, is Salisbury. Yep, Salisbury lost at Ithaca, and we saw you know um, someone posted this list of the uh, of the teams uh, the triple option teams that have lost on the grass up at Butterfield Stadium over the past decade or so. And now, granted, most of them are Springfield. Um, when the Springfield and Ithaca were in the Empire 8 together, um, you know, in the end, I guess I'm not I'm not too surprised that uh, Salisbury lost the game. And I, I watched a fair mo- amount of that game, and that, you know, just did not look like uh, the Salisbury team I had seen play early in the season. They just don't seem to, uh, they don't seem to execute uh, as well on grass. And, you know, when you consider the precision of that offense, it's understandable, I suppose. It was also wet. Um, and you know they just they didn't look nearly as crisp, and yet they almost pulled it out. Yeah, and, and you're right; they had a chance to win that game and uh, gave up a long touchdown pass at, at the end to Ithaca. And that highlight is is uh, on the site; it's in the score scoreboard package. So right when you uh, actually, I think it's in the main news story, the top the top 25 wrap up. So when you click into that, the highlights right there, and you can watch the uh, the way that game ended. For Salisbury, you know, we we knew. Their schedule's tough, and and there's really a handful of of tough schedules this year when you consider how tough the Northwest Conference has been. Um, Minnesota has been tough. You know, Wesley's played this tough schedule. Louisiana College has played this very tough schedule. Huntington, you know, uh, so so they're not alone in that. And and we knew Salisbury. We didn't think they were going to go undefeated, but um, when they got into the meat of the Empire Eight schedule and they'd beaten Alfred and St. John Fisher, we thought they were maybe in good shape and they, they, they had to finish out, um, you know, they had to beat Ithaca and that obviously didn't happen. And now they, they have to, they host uh, Utica on Saturday would really has a high powered dynamic offense. And uh, that could be, you know, that game now has major Empire Eight title implications. And we could go from looking at Salisbury as a top 10 team and a shoe in to two weeks later, if they if they don't beat the Pioneers on Saturday, they're maybe out of the playoffs. 
Yeah, and you know, of course, there's always the we we could talk about how how likely that is to actually happen that uh, Utica goes down to Salisbury and 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 wins at Salisbury. I'm not sure exactly how likely that is, but of course, if that does happen, and then Utica, uh, which play which uh, finishes out its conference uh, slate with St. John Fisher, if they lose uh, that game and throw that conference into a three or four way tie with two losses. That's a whole completely different story that we don't uh, necessarily have the time or the uh, mathematical prognosis or uh, prowess to deal with this week. Um, but you know, it's it's just a surprise to be honest with you what Utica has done this year. You know, they uh, you know they've always I would say they've always, but as almost as long as Andrew Banquet has been on on campus, they've had a, a pretty high powered offense. But you know, you look at uh, this team at, at four and one. In the Empire Eight, uh, they're going to finish above 500 in Empire Eight play for the first time this year, no matter what. Uh, this is a, a program that started in 2001, and you know they've had some success out of conference, but in the Empire Eight, they seem to have always struggled until this year. Well, and, and it is a little bit of an uphill battle because the Empire Eight is full of established programs. When they added Frostburg State and, and Salisbury, you know they added the big powerhouse. In Salisbury, you already had St. John Fisher. Alfred had been, you know, on the cusp of the playoffs for years and finally broke through in 2009. And, and you know, Ithaca, you know, had, had been a dominant program at times, but had always been a consistent winner, you know, for 40 years up until last year. So it was a real uh, tough hill to climb for Utica. But the, the offense is, is right now it's dynamic. You know, they had two. Uh, two receivers go over 100 yards, and they had a running back go over 100 yards on Saturday. So, so they had a nice balanced offense uh, in their 37, uh, 31-7 win over uh, over Alfred. The thing that's impressive is not just the offense now, but they played a, a good defensive game uh, against Alfred. And and we, you know, Alfred's a team we've seen explode for 40 points on occasion this season, and uh, they were having a lot of success running the ball. So so I think just week to week, this Empire Eight has been really. Um, you know, one where the where the results are not easy to predict, and that's fine. That's fun to watch, but it it can make it's going to make for maybe a, a conference champion that uh, doesn't get a good seed and maybe has to go on the road in the first round. You know, that's right. And all these teams that have their automatic bids, hopes, and chances in front of them, you know, they're still playing for seeding. You could uh, you could lose and still get into the playoffs, but you can't at this point in the season very well lose and still get a home game. There are very few teams on the board right now that could do that. Uh, but the Empire Eight could be fairly simple. If Salisbury wins, it's in. You know, if, if Salisbury loses, we could deal with those scenarios next week. There are a couple of teams this week that could uh, that could get into the playoffs even on their bye week. Uh, Lake Forest leads the Midwest Conference by a game, and if St. Norbert loses on Saturday, then Lake Forest wins the automatic bid there. Uh, Waynesburg leads the the uh, Presidents Athletic Conference by a game, and if W and J loses this week to Bethany or to I'm sorry to Geneva, then uh, Waynesburg would get in, uh, even though they have to play W and J head to head in the final week. Um, and there, of course, are a bunch of other conferences where uh, teams can kind of finish winning out in clinch bids this week. Um, the Northern Athletics Conference, for example, I mentioned in the triple take that uh, I was kind of surprised at uh, the fact that. Uh, you know, at the at this point in the season, at the end of the season, that Concordia Chicago and, and Benedictine was not a battle between two teams contending for the title, but really just one. Yeah, you, right. We you know we thought, especially with the talent that Benedictine has, and and I, I thought personally too that that's a league that you'd be kind of kind of watching at the end of the season, and and that really hasn't been the case. Concordia uh, Chicago now you know has to just beat Lakeland and Maranatha Baptist. Um, that's who they finish out with. So you know, one win between the two of them is a uh, is a clincher. There is um, a couple of other scenarios, a couple other conferences where you know it's kind of decided at this point. The they Northwest just, Conference comes to mind there. Right, right. Uh, Linfield has to play uh, you know Puget Sound and Pacific. You know, you you win one of those games and they're in. Uh, you know, California Lutheran in the uh, in the Sky Act, they have to play Chapman, which is not a, necessarily a pushover. But but um, you know that that game's on in week eleven. But but you know you, you get a good feeling that game's at home. Cal Lutheran maybe in Mary Harden Baylor ha- has slayed you know most of the big dragons in the uh, in the American Southwest at this point. So so they are in pretty good shape. But there's a lot of uh, conferences too that are setting up these showdown games, and then there's a whole other handful that are setting up uh, you know what could be three way four way tie scenarios, and those are the ones we spend the most time talking about because they get crazy. Um, but I think we, we're going to have a couple of great games 
Uh, you know, in week 10 and week 11 here, you know, the, the Heartland we've, we've assumed for so long was Franklin, Franklin's to lose. And, and right now, you know, they're tied 6-0 uh, and with Hanover. And, and that could be the victory bell game could, could be a, yeah, have a playoff bid on the line. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the others that could end up in a three-way tie scenario that has a key game going on this weekend would be when uh, St. Thomas goes up to play Concordia Moorhead. And, and St. Thomas, I found very interesting on Saturday. They had on offense, I think they had five freshmen in their starting lineup. Uh, Matt O'Connell was out. Uh, you know, one of their uh, star running backs was out. They uh, just have had uh, so many injuries over the course of the season that they ended up playing, you know, a, a team that was in contention for the conference title a couple weeks ago. They ended up playing them, you know, with uh, a significant port, portion of their starting offense on the bench. And in fact, not only did St. Thomas start its second string quarterback, but it ended with its third string quarterback as the number two got hurt. And I think that Mayak gets much more interesting if Concordia Moorhead wins on Saturday, because then you have a scenario with uh, Concordia Moorhead, Bethel, and St. Thomas all potentially could finish with one one loss. And I think the Mayak may have a strong enough strength of schedule this year, especially with some of the teams uh, each of these teams played uh, in the non-conference schedule. Uh, well, I'm thinking, I guess you know more more Bethel against Warburg, but um, they they may be able to get two at-large teams in in addition to its automatic qualifier. So we could be talking about the MIAC this year sending three teams to the playoffs if the Cobbers beat St. Thomas. But I don't hear a lot of confidence necessarily coming from uh, from from Moorhead because I, I think uh, St. Thomas was so dominant last season and, and has been for a couple of seasons now that they are not assuming that this is a game they'll win. Well, I think, too, that the, the Concordia in general is just a um – plays things so very even keel and is is uh, is is very low key about its own chances. We hear so much about you know the teams down in the metro area um, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and St. John's when they're in contention. Uh, but Concordia is so far removed from all that. Um, they just don't uh, they don't talk about themselves, shall we say, as much as the uh, fan bases from the other teams. And I think that has an impact on uh, how we perceive them. Uh, I think one other thing too, if I remember correctly. Uh, the MIAC is a Rose Bowl rule conference, and that, um, for those who remember, when there needed to be a Rose Bowl rule in the Big Ten, uh, basically it meant if multiple teams were tied and head-to-head -head did not break the tie, then it was the team that had been out of the Rose Bowl, or in this case the playoffs, the longest that would get that automatic bid. In that case, that would be Concordia Moorhead this year. Uh, if they end up all uh, tied with one loss. And then, you know, St. Thomas would have to be first on the table uh, from that league with having beaten Bethel head-to-head. -head. And, yeah, Bethel very well could um, very well could get another at-large bid, and they could get two out of the seven at-large bids. They're, that's what it would take, and it's not entirely unprecedented, obviously. There's been, uh, you know, a very, very limited number in the past of conferences that have gotten two at-large bids in well, in the automatic bid era, but not impossible, as you say. the The strength of schedule is very high. Yeah, yeah. the The Empire Eight did it uh, a few years back and and sent three teams to the playoffs. But it's not something that you usually see because those at large bids are so scarce. You know what I think is interesting about the potential there. Uh, that scenario is everything when it comes to these pool C at large bids. Always comes down to what the strength of the rest of the pool is like. And as we look at things today, you see a team like maybe Heidelberg that's uh, was 7-0 and coming into Saturday, now 7-1 and with a loss to Mount Union. And you figure if they, you know, you, right now they're still in the playoffs. But they, they still have to play Baldwin-Wallace. And if they lose, and if Baldwin-Wallace loses on Saturday to Mount Union, then both of those teams finish with two losses and they may not be in the pool seat discussion. So the pool... Uh, as it stands today and as it stands two weeks from today could be very different. A lot can change. So for teams that are wondering what their chances are like, you know, the first thing your team needs to keep winning. And then the second thing is you need to pay close attention to all the other teams that are in the mix and, and what their results are like on these two coming Saturdays. Right. Just think of how much the landscape changed between uh, when we put out our mock regional rankings on Thursday and now when we're doing this after Saturday's games, there's been a lot of things that have changed and a lot of things can still change. Um, we mentioned uh, a couple of conferences that are, if not mathematically wrapped up, they're um, all but mathematically wrapped up. The, the Northwest Conference is one of them after Linfield defeated Willamette on Saturday by the score of 45-10. to 10. That's a game that was tied at 10 at the half. 
Ryan Carlson, who a, a friend of the show, a longtime listener to the Around the Nation podcast, who runs catdomealumni.com. It's a, uh, a site covering uh, Linfield football. Talked with Brennan Highland, the, uh, one of the defensive ends for Linfield after the game, and here's what he had to say. Well, we knew that they were leading the nation in the passing offense, so for us, especially as a D-line, that kind of that gets us excited because we like to get after it up front, and we knew that once we shut down the run, they were going to have to pass the ball and drop back, you know, 30 times a game, and we just like to let it loose and try to put some pressure on that guy and disrupt that stuff and make it, make it easier for the guys in the secondary to take some pressure off those guys. Yeah, well, Lamet, you know, as we've talked about before, abandoned the fly offense and has uh, has been throwing the ball all over the uh, all over the field this year. But Josh Dean really struggled against Linfield on Saturday. He didn't get a lot of ton of help. You know, Linfield had seven sacks, so if you're not getting a lot of help from your line uh, up front, it's going to be a, a tough passing day for you to begin with. And uh, you know, uh, 96 yards passing for for an offense that was as prolific as Willamette had been this season is really surprising. Uh, you know, the 419 on third down is surprising. And and I, I don't know if, if you can attribute that to not not having been in this offense for years and years and years. Remember, Willamette switched from the fly, changed coaches in the offseason and, and installed this kind of wide open passing attack, which is had worked to date. But it also had wor- been working against teams that don't have quite the talent that Linfield has. And, and, and so, you know, I, as impressive as Linfield's offensive numbers can be at times, you know, this game was a 45-10 game, but it really wasn't a dominant offensive day for Linfield. It, w- it was dominant defensively, and they also got a big uh, big lift from their special teams. You know, this game got out of hand. Uh, you mentioned, Pat, it was 10-10 at the half, 17-10 kind of early in the third quarter, and then Linfield has this sequence where they block a punt uh, and, and, you know, coming out of the end zone and, and fall on it for a touchdown. That makes it 24-10. I believe Josh, we're going to see that as part of the uh, play of the week nominations this week, by the way. And and then the other part of that sequence, right after that, Josh Dean throws an interception. And Linfield, one play, 38-yard touchdown pass from Mickey Inns to Charlie Poppin. And so they turned a 17-10 game to a 31-10 game really quickly. And and. When that's the difference between a team that's pretty good and a team that that is is borderline dominant, and that's where Linfield is right now because you're getting an effort against a great, pretty much a great team in Willamette, a six and two team. You get you're getting a, a dominant day defensively. You're getting a touchdown from your special teams, and oh by the way, you know we we're able to hang 38 points from our offense as well. Yeah, 21 points in just over two and a half minutes. Um starting not quite halfway through that third quarter. And as you mentioned, uh, yeah, that game got pretty much out of hand. And, and as we mentioned Linfield has not mathematically clinched the uh, automatic bid out of the conference. But if you look at who they have left, they finish with Pacific and Puget Sound, and they only need to beat one of those teams. And, um, you know, Puget Sound hasn't won um, in a while. Let's put it that way. And Pacific has only been playing football for three years. So the that's uh, another one of those where, you know, you can clinch with one win, but you really need to uh, have two in order to get uh, the conference uh, or in order to get the playoff seating that you want. Um, similarly, uh, Mike Cragg, uh, the head coach of Hobart, talked about the same thing. Here's a, uh, what he said after the game on the team's website. I, I thought, you know, the first half was great football by Hobart. And on both sides of the ball, special teams, we played very good football. And the end of the day is we have a win and we're moving on, and we need to win one of the next two to win the league and be able to go in the NCAAs. Now, with saying that, I don't think that we played a good enough football game in the second half, and I would not be satisfied with winning one of the next two. So uh, we're marching forward, and we're playing good football, but the nice thing is we have room to improve, and we will. We'll go back to work, and we're going to get better. He's talking, Keith, about a game in which Hobart really had it well in hand at the half, and then it uh, almost got away from them. 
Yeah, you know, Union figured out how to run the ball on Hobart, which nobody had really done uh, all season. And and so this game that was a 28-7 at the half, Union is able to put together. These aren't fluke drives, you know, the, the way they came back in the second half. It's an eight-play, 59-yard drive, six plays, 89-yard uh, seven, you know, six for seventy, seven fifty-three. Their touchdown drives in the second half. You know, though, you, that's a, you put in the stringing together a few plays. Um, you know, Union wasn't dominant running the ball. They only averaged four point three yards per carry. They only rushed for one hundred and fifty-four yards on the day. But compared to what people had been doing uh, to Hobart this season, I believe Hobart came into the game. I looked the stat up last week, but not right before we went on the air. I think they were second in the nation defensively, either against the run or, or overall to Mount Union. And, and Mount Union had some crazy stat, like, you know, they're averaging one yard a carry or something like that. And then Hobart uh, was was next. And I, uh, you know, while we're here, I, I guess I can look it up and, uh, and get it correct. But the big takeaway was that Union was able to, in the second half of that game, you know, whether it was Hobart slacking off because it had a big lead or because teams can actually run on them. Uh, Union was able to, to move the ball a little bit and make that game, make that score a little more interesting than it looked in the first half. Well, and it takes some devotion to come out in the second half and, you know, commit yourself to the run when you're down 28 to 7. Yeah, but but then again, if that's what you, what, the only thing your team does well, or if that's what your team does best, and you're in a situation in a game where, uh, you know, you feel it's getting out of hand, you kind of have to double down on what you do well. And, uh, and and take it one drive at a time. You you know you're down three scores. You got to make it down two scores, and then you got to get a stop, and then you got to make it down one score. And until you can, you know, until you you can't catch up three scores at one time. So you you kind of have to uh, to to do what you do best to, uh, to to close down that gap. Hobart is one of those teams that hasn't clinched an automatic bid yet, but can is. Uh, Coach Craig mentioned with one win in their final two games. They travel to St. Lawrence on Saturday, and then they host Rochester in Week 11. Uh, Union is the only other team in contention for the automatic bid, and they are, of course, one game behind now. Union would have to win out its final two weeks against Merchant Marine, and then at RPI with the Dutchman Shoes game back in Week 11 where it belongs. Good job, Liberty League. I wish there were other conferences that could schedule that way. Um... And maybe that's a good way to segue into the North Coast Athletic Conference and try to figure out what's going on here. Well, it'd be nice if if they could all schedule each other and not just play, you know, Wabash Wittenberg in Week Eleven, which would be great, you know, for, from a national standpoint and from an attention standpoint. You know, we'd all love to see that game uh, that tends to determine the uh, the North Coast playoff bid be played on Week Eleven. But well, I, I wasn't even necessarily talking about that. I I wouldn't advocate moving a big rivalry game off of that week. But I'm, I'm talking about, you know, the fact that, yes, yeah, you mentioned, not all these teams play each other. We have this crazy tiebreaker potentially looming. Um, you know, I'm not sure if it's possible that Kenyon could win the automatic bid out of this league, uh, having played neither Wabash nor Wittenberg. But, you know, the fact that that's even possible is a little bit scary for, for the conference's representation in the playoffs. All right, yeah, so you're right. Wabash and DePaul have to play week 11. Forget anything about playing Wittenberg later in the season. But, yeah, you're looking at a scenario right now on the North Coast where you have um, Wabash, Wittenberg, and Ohio Wesleyan all tied at the top of this conference. Kenyon technically is tied as well with, with the standings in conference games, but they're, you know, all the other teams are 5-1, and 7-1. Kenyon is 5-1, and 5-3. Um for our purposes, you know, for the for determining the division, uh, the the conference champion, you know, most conferences, even if there are four teams, you you have head to head results to sort that out. But in the North Coast, not all the teams play each other. So right now, Kenyon doesn't play Wabash or Wittenberg. They have a loss to Ohio Wesleyan. You have uh, Ohio Wesleyan plays Wabash. And just lost this past Saturday, but doesn't have a game scheduled against Wittenberg. And then you have Wittenberg, who's already lost to Wabash. And then Wabash, who's lost to a team that's not even in this top four in Allegheny. And all these things could come into play if they have to break this tie because the head-to-head results aren't going to do it. So then, you know, the the next thing down the list is, uh, you know, results against North Coast teams in descending order. And then the next thing down the list is... Uh, away conference losses you know the good thing is that this crazy unbalanced north coast schedule goes away finally next year they have a 10-team conference and in 2013 they're actually going to play nine conference games and i think this goes back to all the way back to the late 90s where 
you know you had Oberlin struggling uh, as a as a as a program, not just as a not just to compete, but struggling just to you know maintain uh, a, a football team. You know, and they uh, they dropped out of the conference for a year. Uh, 1999, they did not play any conference games, or they didn't play any games that counted in the conference standings, and they ended up playing people such as Swarthmore and Pomona Pitzer and Alfred and Earlham. Um, I remember if Earlham was in the North Coast in 99. It, uh, things have gone back and forth so many times. But point being, the conference has already always been, well, always, uh, in the last 15 years, as long as we've been tracking this closely, has been very protective let's say of its uh of, of its of its bottom teams the reason why not everybody plays everybody is because there's a rotation set up so that the uh so that the bottom teams don't have to play all the top teams every year and you know th there've been a couple times where it looked like the end of the season was going to come down to something like this and uh this year might be the year it actually happens yeah and and you know for Kenyon to be in the mix Pat and and be a team that uh, you know for many years hasn't been competitive. It's coming off a pair of of zero and ten seasons, and you, and and from my perspective, you think, wow, just for them to have five wins this season is pretty impressive, you know. But they're not just a five win team right now. They're a team that has a chance if things break right to win the North Coast. You know, I, I think that's a kind of a long shot. And, and right now, you know, he, I I don't think. Ohio Wesleyan, you know, acquitted itself very well on Saturday either. And so you wouldn't expect them to, you know, to be a team that re the best team to represent the North Coast in the playoffs. But but right now they have a chance. These final few weeks are, are going to decide that. And, uh, you know, depending on how the tiebreakers break, I, I think uh, Wittenberg is in maybe the best shape out of everybody based on, you know, some of the scenarios we threw around before we went on the air. But, um, you know, Wabash is probably the well going by our poll Wabash is the best team and uh they would be the team you think would would represent the conference uh the best but you got to go by how that how the tiebreakers work and, and if if Wabash wins out their uh, strength of schedule I think would be enough to get them in as an at-large team as a, at nine and one um I wanted to say one last thing about Kenyon um at five and three, that's uh, the most wins they've had since 2005. And if they win, uh, if they win their last two games, despite you know, in, in addition to you know the complete meltdown of the North Coast fan base, especially the ones in Indiana, uh, in addition to that, it'd be the the best season they've had since uh, I don't have records going back that far. So it is a great season for them and for first year head coach uh, Chris Monfaletto. So congratulations to what's gone on there so far. But um, it would be interesting. Yeah, because uh, because Wabash lost a conference home game, um, and and it's just the way the extra tiebreakers break out. Who knows how that all works out? But it could be a situation where Wittenberg is in the is in the field automatically at nine and one, and then Wabash, who would actually have a better uh, playoff resume than Wittenberg because of the head to head win, would get in most likely and would would certainly I would think get seated above them. Because one thing we got to remind people is that. Just because you're an automatic bid doesn't mean that you're seated higher than all the at-large teams. It certainly does not work out that way as uh, in years past. No, and and, that, and you're right. You got to take those two things and separate them. First, the playoff uh, committee picks the 32 teams, and then they go about the business of seating them. And the things, the things that conferences use to determine their own automatic qualifier aren't necessarily things that the committee will look at when they seed teams. As far as this audit, this. Uh, you know, North Coast to the schedule. You know, how can you crown a, a conference champion uh, if some reason Kenyon were to do it uh, without playing the two best teams in in the conference and being Wabash and Wittenberg? It just that that they got to get that the, the schedule thing fixed, and we know it's it's coming next year. So I guess there's no point in complaining about it, but it, it could uh, end in in disaster or excitement, depending on how you look at it this year. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And of course, if there's a multiple way tie, they would all get conference trophies. They'd all get to call themselves conference champions, but only one would get the automatic bid. And uh, I would say only Wittenberg or Wabash would have a realistic shot at getting an at-large out of this group as well. Ohio Wesleyan's strength of schedule is just too far down there. And even though they got a bit of a boost from playing Wabash on Saturday, obviously uh, they did not fare so well in that game. So those are just some of the many things to consider. Um, you know, another team with 
really poor strength of schedule, but not too many people questioning uh, where they fit into the Division Three national landscape is Mount Union, and they finally uh, got into the uh, the upper part of the OAC schedule over the last couple of weeks, including a game on Saturday against Heidelberg, a game in which, gasp, you know, Mount Union actually gave up points and actually trailed in the game and actually struggled a little bit in the beginning, too, because, uh, you know, they uh, they missed a couple of extra points and it took a little while for Mount Union to get rolling. But uh, as is typical when Mount Union needs to, they uh, found something different in the second half that worked for them. Yeah, and, and you know, going back to that early part of the game, Pat, the it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't like Heidelberg hit a, you know, halfback option pass, a trick play early in the game and, and took a 7 nothing lead. They, they earned that with an 11-play, 75-yard drive. They had a couple third-down conversions. They had some uh, good running by Cartel Brooks on that drive. And then when he got, got – um, he, when he ran out of gas a little bit, they brought in Brian Lacey, and he's sort of a scat back, change of pace. So you, you see Mountain Union is actually a little bit vulnerable on defense. They were coming off six straight shutouts. They'd given up one touchdown all season, and here comes Heidelberg, you know, four minutes into the game, uh, leading seven to nothing. And then Heidelberg forces a three and out, and they play back and forth the whole first first quarter and into the second quarter it was seven six game uh till about the five minute mark in, in the second quarter and uh kevin burke hit uh, julius moore a 38 yard touchdown pass um and mountain union actually went in at the break because as you mentioned pat it missed the missed an extra point missed a two-point conversion they went in just 12 7 up and then they dominated the third quarter and were able to put some distance between them and heidelberg in that game but you know, a couple of big takeaways from it is that you can move the ball on Mountain Union. Uh, Mountain Union does have that that sort of that toughness, that fortitude that, you know, we you know, they hadn't tra- trailed all season. So we don't know. We we're just ranking them number one because they hadn't given up any points and because they'd always been number one, not because they'd beaten any real impressive teams or had to struggle to, to win a game. But the past several seasons, Mountain Union usually plays one game like this. Uh, in the regular season, last year was the Baldwin Wallace game. This year, you know, it, it, the Heidelberg game didn't come down to any kind of uh, fourth quarter heroics, but it, they they had to they they had to battle a little bit, like most teams do. And uh, that was a good sign if you're a Mountain Union fan to see. You know, it's great to have your team dominate all the time, but you're not always going to be playing the Muskingums and the Wilmingtons of the world. And the further you get into into the end of the season, into this tournament, you're going to be playing the teams. The quality of Heidelberg may be better. And so you want to see the, the Mountain Union respond. And uh, they were able to do that on, on Saturday, especially, as you mentioned, Pat, in the second half, getting the, uh, get the ground game going and uh, having some, some real uh, you know, nice long touchdown drives. You mentioned earlier, of course, uh, the Heidelberg's uh, – meat of their schedule is not done yet. They host John Carroll on Saturday. John Carroll has been kind of quietly 6-2. and two. Uh, Baldwin Wallace is 7-1, and one, uh, and Baldwin Wallace has to play uh, Mount Union on Saturday. But if, if Heidelberg were to were to win out and go 9-1, and one, what's your impressions of them as a playoff team compared to where you've seen playoff teams in the past? Well, I think they're, they're a team that could win a first-round game or two. You know, it depends what kind of match. Uh, well, they could they couldn't win two first round games, but they could win two playoff games. <laughs> it, yeah. it depends. It depends what kind of matchup they get. Uh, it depends how they finish out the season. You know, I learned a little bit about them by watching them play Mount Union and 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 you know put together a long touchdown drive, but they didn't put together a full sixty minutes of great football. So, you know, it's hard to judge a team how they match up against Mount Union and how they would match up against say, a, a, you know, a conference champion from Michigan or, you know, one of the conferences in Illinois that's not the CCIW, you know, someone like that that, that you, you may play in, in the first round. Um, I, I like them as a 9-1 and one team if, they, if they're able to, to beat John Carroll and Baldwin-Wallace, but I don't think that's a, that's a shoe. And I, I watched Baldwin-Wallace play a little bit earlier in the season uh, on a broadcast of the Wilmington game, and it's hard to get a lot out of that as well. But Baldwin-Wallace definitely has the, the, the horses to, uh, to play with Heidelberg, and so that'll be a fun game to watch uh, in a couple weeks. And I've seen John Carroll, too. They have a, they have a quarterback they're really excited about in, in Mark Myers. He's um, a transfer from Pittsburgh, I believe, and, and he's given them a spark offensively this season. I don't know if, um, if I'm quite as impressed with, with John Carroll as I was with, uh, with Heidelberg uh, on video, but um, you know, we'll see how that all shakes out. That's the fun of this thing, Pat. Is is it's all right on top of us? You know, we're 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 looking at all the different scenarios from all the different angles right now. 
But, you know, in, 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 you know, 12 days, 13 days from the time you listen to this podcast, oh. it'll be Selection Sunday. Oh, God. Saturday. No, sorry. That hurts. <laughs> Yikes. Selection Sunday is, uh, is practically upon us. So, um, Mountain Union, size-wise, uh, you know, across the front line, the guys who started the game on Saturday, 290, 270, 250, 315, 260, seems like typical numbers for them. How did they, uh, how did they size up? How they look to you on film? I mean, they look, they look giant. You know, the, these guys that they have playing for them look. I'm not going to say NFL tackles or Division One tackles, but they look much bigger than the guy they are standing across from defensively. And and when you you know you watch them block, that line really moves as one. They have some some kind of zone blocking concepts, and and they shift some of their pass blocking so that um, if it's a rollout, so, you know if Burke rolls out, the 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 line rolls with them. It's kind of a beautiful thing if you appreciate football in that way. I thought they're um, you know they gave up a sack. On on uh, Saturday, or I guess it, it, in the in the stats, it doesn't say there was a sack, but it, it, I'm pretty I'm pretty certain uh, I, I saw a sack in, the, in this game. And so you know, Mount Union giving up some pressure to to Burke yeah, in, in this thing. Um, it's so different from what they're used to because they they're they're perfect up front. And and this offensive line, I don't think they're perfect. They they work well together and. They're they're much bigger than than uh, than probably whoever they'll see in the first, you know, a few rounds of the playoffs. I think you're going to have to get to a to a Wisconsin Oshkosh or a Mary Harden Baylor uh, that type of matchup before you see someone that will that will push this uh, you know offensive line around. I think they're real strong up front, and that makes Burke look good because he has a lot of time to throw. There are a lot of other ranked teams we could talk about. There are also a lot of other teams with playoff uh, potential and hopes that we could talk about. But I want to talk about. The Harden Simmons Sol Ross State game, uh, the game in which the all-time NCAA record for most combined yards of total offense was set, and that bar was raised pretty high. Uh, the Division Three record was in the 1400 range, and these two teams combined for you know just 1,714 yards of total offense. Um, you know, for uh, for Harden Simmons, Logan Turner threw for 685 yards, uh, which is, as we know, not the Division Three record because we saw that set earlier in the season. But nonetheless, what did a crazy, crazy box score this thing turns out to be? Yeah, you know, there's so many different ways you can look at this and, and present it to try to give somebody a, a sense of how crazy a game it was. Here's a, the one that stood out to me. Sol Ross State rushed for five yards without their best offensive player or, or their best non-quarterback playing in Dominique Carson. They rushed for 345 yards and lost by 43 points. Now, we know coming in to this game that Solra State had uh, been statistically one of the number, you know, the, the, at one point the number one offense in the country and had been the, the top passing offense and the worst passing defense in the country. So we knew they were going to, you know, give up some points to uh, to Harden Simmons, but this 80 85 points and 900 yards was uh, was you know a new low for for that defense. And the crazy thing is they're almost able to match it. You know they're they're able to to go back and forth with teams. They just didn't do a good job on Saturday of, of putting the points on the board or keeping any points off the board. Yeah, as a defensive guy, how does that feel just to to see something like that and know what that defense went through? Uh, you know. Uh, uh, I played in a game where we gave up 50 points, and it was uh, you know, to your alma mater, and it was a, a, a dark, dark Monday. The the first practice back after uh, giving up 50 points on a Saturday, you know the the coach is disappointed. You, we ran laps, and it, it was you know he's never going to let this happen again. Giving up 50 points, and I know it was a little bit of a different era back then. Still run and shoot and spread offenses, but giving up 86, you know when you when you give up. Uh, you know, 28 points in back-to-back um, quarters. Not, you know, not just uh, 28 points is usually not not that good for a game. And you're giving up, you know, four touchdown quarters here and there. Uh, so Ross, I, I have to think this has to do a little bit with what their philosophy is as far as team building right now. It's, it seems like their best athletes are on offense, and they just uh, they don't have the 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 guys on defense to to hold up. You know, you can't. I mean, they fell behind in this game 49-7 at one point. You know, you're giving up 49 points and a half. Even though your offense can can score with the best of them, you just you just can't compete that way. You know, the the rest of this league, if if the 
if they had the right number of teams, you might as well call them the little 12. There was a 68 to six game. There was a 44 to 37 game in overtime. And you know, that East Texas Baptist Mississippi college game that was 34, 24, you know, seems fairly pedestrian by comparison. Low scoring game of the day, but the, the American Southwest has really got some high powered offenses this season. When you, when you talk about uh, Mary Harden Baylor and what they do with the run game and how they've mixed the pass in this year with a, with a real sharp, Ladarryl Bailey, and then you got Darius Wilson, one of the best running backs in the country. You got another one of the great running backs in the country over at Louisiana College, where uh, Ryan Montague has, has really stood out. And then you have another great, great uh, running back and a great quarterback now, or at least an offensively prolific pair in AJ Springer and Dominique Carson from Sol Ross State, and uh, you know Harden Simmons, obviously no no slouches as well. Uh, I mean Texas Lutheran. We saw them put up a bunch of points against Sol Ross in in, in uh, a game a couple weeks ago, and uh, and you know they have a they have a weapon that maybe nobody else in D three has, and a kicker who can make a fifty five yard field goal. So uh, it's a been a, it's been a fun conference to watch this season. The American Southwest. The you know the problem is is. What the problem is in a lot of conferences when you have a lot of good teams is that they beat up on each other a little bit and they may only get one playoff representative. And that would be Mary Harden Baylor, of course, sitting uh, at the top of the conference. And, you know, right there, number two in the uh, in the top 25 poll. Um, I know earlier in the season, uh, Mary Harden Baylor had two number one votes. Right now they have one. Um, you know, I, I my personal take is that at this point in the season, um, having a number one vote and not being Mount Union is, you know, is is something to hang your hat on. There's not too many teams other than Mount Union and over the past seven years Whitewater, who have gotten number one votes. Pat, at this point in the season, the number one votes are less of a concern than being a number one seed. That's really what you want to get focused on at this point in the season. And that means the, the top four teams in the country are going to get to benefit the benefit of possibly playing three or four playoff games at home, depending on, on obviously if they win and, and who's matched up in the semifinal round. And, uh, you know, having to... to get a you know maybe maybe you get a kind of a easier team in the first round and, and you don't have that path i think the the you know the the huge concern from from my standpoint now is which of the teams uh among the potential number one seed candidates is going to get placed on the same side of the bracket as mountain union and maybe have to play that game a week before salem and which team is going to get the opportunity to get to salem and, and enjoy that uh what everything that goes along with being a stag bowl team I think one of the other things, uh, the other games that we haven't really talked about yet, and this is a team that obviously is not going to be in contention for one of those top seeds, but uh, it kind of directly relates to Mary Harden Baylor, is uh, to talk about this Wesley Huntington game, a game in which Wesley had to come back yet again and uh, and win on the road. I, I wonder if, you know, these kids have traveled thousands and thousands and thousands of miles over the course of the season, and it's not been, you know, and when you're flying often to a D3 school, you know, you're 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 not talking about a team that's in a major market. Um, you know, Wesley has to go up to I don't know if they go to if they fly out of Philly or if they fly out of Baltimore. Um, but either way, they have to get in a bus to go to the airport, and they have to get in a bus for a couple hours. Usually, once they get to a destination as well, that's just a lot of travel for kids at this level. It is, and and Wesley's made a habit of it. I think they or, or because they have to. You know, they don't have the conference. To uh, to fill out their schedule for them, so they take games, you know, pretty much wherever they can get them. I, I believe they fly out of Newcastle, which is uh, I knew about. They, I know they flew out of Philly in order to go to, uh, in order to go to San Francisco. I, yeah, I it's in it's the playoffs. Memo, yeah. In the playoffs, you get uh, you might get a charter plane and you might be able to fly more locally than that. But I know in a lot of cases they're flying out of Philly. And, and but your point still holds. You know, if you got to get down to Alabama uh, from Delaware. There isn't a whole lot of direct flights, you know, and so those guys, you know, if they, they've got to, like you said, board a bus. They, they have to go miss class time, which is sort of the, the anti-Division three philosophy, but they get to have this great experience of going to play in California one week, going to play in Alabama another week. They went down to Louisiana earlier in the season, and I think the thing that, that Wesley has learned about itself this season is that it's a team that can sort of fight through whatever comes up during the course of a game. You know, they trailed in almost every game this season and, uh, and have won almost every game this season. And, and they've also, you know, played 
some of the best possible teams they, they could have played, you know, in, in terms of scheduling Mary Harden, Baylor, uh, Birmingham Southern, Huntington, and um, I'm already, already for Louisiana College, you know, and Salisbury. So they've played five teams that have been ranked in the top 25 at one point. You know, there's some other great schedules out there. Linfield, every team they've played has a winning record or, or did as of last week when I looked that up. But Wesley, I think, um, they're, they're not dominant. They're not statistically outstanding anywhere. They don't have any one player, you know, like they did last year that makes you go, oh, man, that guy is something else. But they've become a team that, that can sort of, you know, they're, they're going to be battle tested as far as uh, travel in the playoffs, as far as playing tough teams, seeing different kinds of offenses and defensive looks. They'll be, they'll be ready and they're going to be clearly one of the tough outs, one of the candidates to get to Salem. Yeah, not, not much is going to phase them uh, once they get into the postseason. And it is basically a foregone conclusion. I, I, we talked about how the fact that this game was basically going to wrap up the Pool B bid for whoever wanted one team or the other. Um, Wesley only has a nine-game schedule. They, uh, they could not find a tenth opponent. They host uh, Newport News Apprentice on Saturday, and then they are off in Week 11. Uh, waiting to go into the playoffs. Uh, Apprentice is not a Division three school, so and is not likely to pose much of a challenge to Wesley either, just based on the, their, their recent history as well. Wesley just needs to win uh, and wrap up an 8-1 season at this point. Yeah, and, and so whatever happens in their final game is not going to affect their playoff standing. We think they're good in Pool B, and, and you know, the vir- by virtue of of not being able to schedule that tenth game, they're going to have what amounts to a bye before the playoffs to get healthy, to uh, to you know to just sit back and watch week eleven, watch the you know Widener and Delvals of the world play each other and and maybe knock each other down a few pegs as far as where they're going to end up in the um, the seeds when when this stuff comes out. You know Wesley will be maybe in the south, maybe grouped in with the, with some of the eastern teams uh, when they're they're their playoff seeding comes out, but with as a team with a loss and looking at Hobart, Widener, Johns Hopkins, Mary Harden Baylor, these undefeated teams in the South and the East, you know, Wesley's just just hoping they can enough teams lose or enough bad results shake out that they can get a home game. Let alone two or, you know, where they some of the places they've been in the past. I, I would say if you're Huntington, uh don't give up the ship yet. You've uh you've uh five and two could end up this season seven and two because they're an independent. They also have only been able to find nine games. If they finish with one more regional game, they host Adrian, and then we'll talk about you know the Adrian Albion game as a MIAA head-to-head. Um, in fact, that may be all we have time to say about it. Cause we're fifty minutes in, but I was a little aware of you promising that we'll talk about <laughs> that. That's well, we've just talked about it. We may not be able to say much more about it, but that's a really interesting game as well. I mean, Huntington, uh, that'll be. That'll be nice for their strength of schedule. And we talked about all the, you know, talked about some of the one-loss teams that have that uh, played themselves into two losses this week. Uh, Huntington would look would still look pretty good as a two-loss candidate in uh, as an at-large team in Pool C. Well, I get this question a lot by email on Twitter. Basically, any way someone could get in touch with me. Um, how what do I t- my team's chances look like if I'm a team that's you know, six and two right now? Maybe a couple five and three teams have asked the question, but I think based on the pool that we're looking at right now, that there's a chance for a two-loss team to get in, maybe a couple of them, you know, depending on, on what happens in these final two weeks here. And the two-loss teams that have high strength of schedule numbers, the, uh, the Pacific Lutheran, the Louisiana College, and the Huntingdon, uh, you know, those teams are going to, and, you know, maybe Wisconsin-Platteville, may, those teams are going to be the teams that have a chance when the, um, you know, if this pool of at-large teams suddenly doesn't have that many uh, one-loss teams in there or doesn't have that many, you know, we could see potentially one, a weak one-loss team get leapfrogged by a, uh, by a team that's 8-2 and two but has some, a couple of strong victories or played in a strong conference as we saw last season. Adrian Albion. Yeah, well, that's, uh, 
you know, basically for the 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 MIAA title, it's at Albion. Uh, Adrian has uh, has already beaten Trine, and and they were pretty strong in that game. You know, I thought that what stood out from that game was their defense holding Trine to uh, to three points and having to hold off a late a late threat from Trine. And then you know, if they win that game and they clinch the the conference title, it will it would be interesting to see how hard they try to play against Huntington. How, you know, do they sit a couple guys out? Are they trying to get healthy because they're going to have a play off game most likely a game on the road in the north region where you know there aren't a whole lot of good matchups for you you're going to get a tough game right out the gate and they'll know from uh, the looks of this uh, week's regional rankings which come out wednesday afternoon by the way we typically i would say we tend to see them by 4 p.m eastern although sometimes the first one is a little later uh, but anyway uh, adrian we get a chance to see already where it uh, where it kind of checks out it, itself in the region if they're not in the top 10 or in the top eight in this first regional ranking. And I, I would be kind of surprised if they were um, because their strength to schedule isn't very strong right now. Um, yeah, they'd be in a position where it's like, well, they might end up playing Mount Union whether they win or lose in week 11. But by the same token, if Huntington ha- happens to sneak into the, the top 10 in the South as a regionally ranked opponent, Adrian's going to want to win that game and have a win over a regionally ranked opponent uh, to to help boost its own playoff resume. And maybe it, it, it's a high, you know, fifth or sixth seed and doesn't have to play Mount Union right away or or, uh, you know, get sent to Oshkosh or somewhere like that. I know even though that's a West team, it's not all that far from Michigan. And so, you know, we just don't know where. um how this is all going to shake out because everything depends on the 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 exact 32 teams that we put in the field and, and how they cluster up as far as uh, which four teams are going to be surround which eight teams or seven teams are going to surround the eighth team in its bracket the number one seed. Co is one of those teams that just needs to win one of its last two games to uh, to clinch that automatic bid. They finish at Luther and then they host Central. And the reason they haven't clinched yet is because uh, Central is sitting two games behind them, but uh, you know they have the head-to-head game coming up. Coe's a team that's been kind of uh, shooting its way up our top 25 over the last couple of weeks, and you know after uh, after beating Dubuque, you know which you know is a game that probably meant a little bit more last year than they went and they uh, pounded Simpson on the road uh, a week ago Saturday, and then they they handled Wartburg 35 to seven at home on uh, this Saturday as well. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of teams that we were holding back on as voters, and I'm just, I'm just going to speak for the 25, I guess, as a group. You know, Ohio Wesleyan was one of them, and, and Heidelberg was one for some people, where you were waiting to see how they fared against a good team. And now Coe has played Simpson and demolished them. They played Warburg and won 35-7. And now you look at that that resume against some of these other resumes, and you say, well, they got two pretty impressive victories. And, and, and now... Co is looking like a, t- a team that's in the teens, much much rather than a team that's on the cusp of the top twenty-five. And so, uh, at, at the rate they're going, and you know, get, maybe get a good good matchup in in the first round of the playoffs. You know, uh, Co and Johns Hopkins, I think, are the two teams right now that have a basically a two-game lead uh, on their closest competitor in the conference or, uh, and, and can pretty much uh, wrap up the bid. They're in the group that we probably mentioned 30 or 45 minutes ago of, of conferences that are more or less clinched at this point. You know, something crazy would have to happen for O or for uh, Johns Hopkins to not win uh, their respective conferences. And we're going to look forward to week 10. You know, some of these games, uh, some of these head-to-head games that could or might define uh, the conference automatic bid around the schedule. We talked about uh, Baldwin-Wallace hosting Mount Union. Uh, we talked about the St. Thomas-Concordia-Moorhead game. Talked about a whole slate of games that um, you know teams uh, could clinch if they win. Uh, Mary Harden-Baylor just needs to finish it out. They, uh, they go to East Texas Baptist, for example. Um, you know, the two teams that clinched last week we haven't really talked very much about. Uh, Oshkosh uh, went to lacrosse, got that win that it needed to uh, to clinch the automatic bid, um, and got the help it needed when uh, Stevens Point beat Whitewater to uh, to help clinch that automatic bid. So Oshkosh finishes with uh, Stevens Point, and then I think it is Stout uh, the final two weeks. Um, you know, Oshkosh is this is unfamiliar territory, obviously not only just being in the playoffs, but being in the playoffs with two weeks to spare. Yeah, for them though, they need to finish because. 
they're in contention for a number one seed. If, if for instance, St. Thomas loses this week, you know, that takes them out of the undefeated dominant team group and, and, and Oshkosh could end up being the, you know, uh, a, a number one seed out of the Westy Northy region there. <laughs> the Westy Northy. Because uh, Mount is in the Easty Northy region. But, uh, you know, one of the reasons we don't, we didn't talk about Oshkosh and Cortland state a lot, um, this week is because we talked about them so much last week. We talked about Oshkosh after their big win over Whitewater, and we talked about Cortland State being a team that, you know, kind of like Co. Just just a few minutes ago, we mentioned that had lost their their opener, and had flown under the radar for a while. And because the Injack, you know, didn't have a dominant team for a while, and then it looked like Rowan was going to be that dominant team. We didn't really pay any attention to Cortland State except in passing until they beat Rowan. And once they had that big victory the Saturday before this one and uh, and then they had to play Kane which was the you know the the last big matchup for them to uh, to clinch the NJAC uh, they went ahead and did that and you know you'll see that their the picture of the team you know all gathered together celebrating the the first bid it's uh you know sometimes we have a few more teams than this clinch in week nine it's uh, uh it's it's kind of good to only have two right now because that means we have a lot of drama in a lot of these other conferences in week 10 and week 11 are going to be real great weeks as far as uh you know the competition across the country is concerned Cortland goes to patterson on saturday and then hosts ithaca for the cortica jug in week 11 does this look like a trap game on saturday for them I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, William Patterson is, is disappointed a little bit in Cortland State. Uh, you know, maybe I guess it could be it could fit the definition of trap game because you, you the two things you focus on if you play for Cortland State is you want to win the NJAC and you want to beat Ithaca. And so, you know, this is they may get caught looking ahead a little bit, but I don't I, I think they got to keep their eyes on the prize here on this one. And, and William Patterson hasn't been uh, quite the threat we thought they might be at the beginning of the season. I think Cortland State uh, should be able to get it done. Little Brass Bell game is on Saturday in week 10 as uh, North Central hosts Wheaton. You know, we you and I were there. When uh, the when the when the bell changed hands for the first time in a while, you know now since then, uh, Wheaton's uh, nobody on Wheaton's team, none of Wheaton's players have ever uh, have ever had the little brass bell. Yeah, Pat, remember, it, it was a few years back that we went to that game, and that was when North Central was kind of first on the rise, and that was a big, real big deal when North Central uh, first first won that rivalry game. And not saying that they had never won it before, but it was you know they it had been Wheaton's territory for a while, and now. Uh, you know the CCIW is is North Central's to lose, and and Wheaton has been a playoff team. It's gone farther in the playoffs than North Central in, in the same season as North Central. But when these two teams get together for whatever reason, the Cardinals seem to to, to really manhandle Wheaton, and it's at uh, it's in Naperville this season, which is you know a, a stone's throw from uh, from the campus in in Wheaton. But it's um it's a game that you would think on paper. Because of the or or just by name recognition, you think Wheaton and North Central are going to play a great game, but they, they some of them ha- have turned out not to be so great over the years because North Central's really turned into a, a pretty dominant program. Two thousand five, that was the year we were there, and two thousand seven was the last time that uh, that Wheaton won that game. Um, and it's not just that North Central's manhandled Wheaton necessarily. North Central's manhandled pretty much the entire CCIW for a couple years now. Well, not not so much just a couple years, but the 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 way they've bounced back from their week one loss this season has been really tremendous. They uh, have put up you know average of well over forty points. Um, you know, thir- they had one game where they only scored thirty seven. Every other game they've been uh, over forty. The defense ha- has given up twenty two points once, and then in in the tens and teens the rest of the time. So you know that loss to lacrosse uh, in week one was a little bit surprising, but not so surprising. We see WIAC teams beat um, teams from, you know, good teams from other conferences all the time. Um, but they bounce, you know, North Central bounced back against Redlands and blown out anybody good that's come close to them. You know, Elmhurst 44 10, and Elmhurst hadn't lost another game this season. Illinois was, you know, ranked at one point, and that was 52 nothing on Saturday. And we know, you know, Illinois Wesleyan wasn't playing with its quarterback, but it doesn't bode all that well for Wheaton, which has had a nice season but not a great season to, uh, you know, they're going to need to play their best game and pull the upset. And if they do, then we have an interesting three-way tie scenario on the CCIW with Elmhurst, North Central, and Wheaton. But, uh, but it would take, you know, a pretty special effort from the Thunder to do it. 
October 31st, 2009 was the last time anybody in the CCIW was within one score of North Central. That was a game that uh, North Central actually lost to Illinois Wesleyan um, back in the, the 2009 season. So it has been, shall we say, a while. Um, you know, if For all other games coming up on Saturday, anything else that you want to uh, look at or, or spotlight on the schedule? Obviously, we have a some great games in week 11 and we have a potential UMAC championship head-to-head uh, -head matchup this week when St. Scholastica no sorry see it's a knee-jerk reaction these days when Northwestern hosts Greenville but there, there's other good games too well the, the one we mentioned very early in this podcast um what was Salisbury Utica I think that's going to be a, a obviously a huge one for the um for the Empire, you know, to, to, to sort that out. You know, some weeks, some years, the, the rivalry games kind of hit a week early, and, and that has, that's not happening this year. You know, we're not going to see uh, the, the, the bronze, uh, bronze turkey game early. So uh, that'll, that'll be week 11. Um, the the NESCAT games are kind of interesting because Trinity uh, of Connecticut manhandled um, Middlebury. 45-7 on Saturday, and so now they they have to they have to beat Amherst, uh, which they host on on uh, Saturday, and we know Trinity has the nation's longest home winning streak, I think 46 games, and then Trinity is going to play its rival Wesleyan uh, in in week 11, and Wesleyan right now is uh, is uh, five and one, and so they end the NESCAC, even though there is no automatic bid to be clinched. Uh, that, that could be a kind of a fun finish, and and that starts this week. In fact, all the NESCAC, you know, the the great rival. Two-week rivalry because of these these little three-team subgroups that uh, that play each other. Uh, another game to keep an eye on is Kane at Rowan, which uh, Rowan is right now in Pool C. But if you're one of those teams that um, is is on the cusp and hoping to get in, you may want to you know be a big Kane fan this week and, and hope Rowan uh, it, it gets knocked out of Pool C. I, I think there are are a few games like that across the country where we'll have different reasons to be interested in the game besides the, uh, you know, the, the big rivalry games that, that tend to start popping up in week 10 and almost always pop up in week 11. And that folks is the around the nation podcast for the week of October 29th, 2012 sponsored by the city of Salem host of stag bowl 40 tickets on sale. Now go to www.salemciviccenter.com that game a Friday night, December 14th in Salem Stadium in the city of Salem. And, of course, don't forget all the other things you will get on D3Football.com this week. Uh, scroll down. You get to the uh, D3Football postgame show. Those are the D3 reports and highlight packages. Again, if you're a school that does a highlight package, make sure we know about it. Get it in that playlist. Uh, we want to get you know everything that we can out there for uh, people to just kind of click through and see what's there. Um, We'll announce the uh, play of the week on Tuesday morning. We'll have around the region columns on Tuesday. Wednesday, we'll have more around the region columns. And then the release of those first official NCAA regional rankings on Wednesday afternoon. Then on Thursday, we will have Keith's Around the Nation column. Uh, I will do a playoff projection where we uh, mock up who the pool B and who the seven pool C teams would, would be if the season ended today. Uh, and then set up a bracket and let you people finally see what this uh, what a potential bracket could look like for 2012. Uh, then on Friday, we'll have triple take our predictions for the weekend. And then Saturday, week 10 games. And that's the Around the Nation podcast.